Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria, coming to you live from New York. Today on the show, America is back. Diplomacy is back. America's adversaries react to President Biden. Two of the largest challenges facing the new administration are what to do about ever-increasing competition from Beijing and how to handle Tehran's nuclear ambitions. I'll have exclusive conversations with Iran's Foreign Minister Javed Zarif and China's ambassador to Washington, Sui Tiankai. Also, the military in Myanmar consummates another coup. What is behind the ouster and arrest of Nobel Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi? I will explain. But first, here's my take. We're all wondering how the Republican Party, the party of Abraham Lincoln, got to the point that it has an elected member of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has suggested Nancy Pelosi could be executed for treason, cast doubt on the events of 9-11, and speculated that a Jewish cabal used lasers to start California's wildfires. The answer is in plain sight. The continual accommodation of extremism by the party's leaders. This week, the Republican Congressional Caucus declined to censure Green in any way. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy pretended not to even know what QAnon was. In the Senate, Mitch McConnell has finally drawn the line, describing Green's views as loony. But it is too little too late. The party has been encouraging loony views for years. Today, we rightly applaud Mitt Romney for his political courage. But it's worth recalling that when he was running for president in 2012, he craved Donald Trump's endorsement. When he got it, he gushed. There are some things that you just can't imagine happening in your life. Later that year, Romney tacitly endorsed Trump's most noxious lie, birtherism. No one's ever asked to see my birth certificate. They know that this is the place that we were born and raised. The real big lie at the heart of the modern Republican Party, though, is about public policy, not conspiracy theories. Since the 1930s, Republicans promised their voters the repeal of FDR's New Deal. When the next Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, did nothing of the sort, the modern conservative movement emerged, furiously branding Ike a traitor. When LBJ enacted the Great Society, conservatives pledged that once elected, they would tear it all down and never did. Ronald Reagan launched his political career by denouncing Medicare as a direct path to socialism. If passed, he famously warned, You and I 
are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. Of course, as president for eight years, Reagan left Medicare largely intact and actually ended up expanding the program. In the early 1990s, House leader Newt Gingrich doubled down on a rhetoric of radicalism and extremism. He promised revolution and described political opponents as the embodiment of evil who win only because they lie and cheat. E.J. Dion has described the toxic results of this strategy as the politics of disappointment and betrayal. Ted Cruz follows the same strategy today still. His 2016 platform included promises to repeal Obamacare, abolish the IRS, and balance the budget, plans that he knew could never get enacted. But they were just the right red meat for the base. He treats his supporters like cannon fodder, whipping them into hysteria and sending them into battle. The Republican Party endlessly crowed about repealing and replacing Obamacare, only to come to power without any viable plan, and then quickly accommodated itself to the reality it had vowed to overturn. This entire decades-long strategy has led millions of Republicans to feel cheated and lied to by their leaders, creating an atmosphere of paranoia and suspicion toward anyone who is not utterly extreme. It also feeds the notion that true conservatism fails because of some kind of treason, betrayal, or collusion. It is a short and direct line from the tactics of Newt Gingrich to the January 6th Capitol riot. If you're looking for an alternative path for a conservative leader, one who even knows how to appeal to populist and nationalist sentiment, look at British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Johnson, who initially and badly bungled COVID-19, is now tackling the pandemic with much greater seriousness, and he has gradually emerged as the most consequential conservative politician since Margaret Thatcher. He has been slowly but surely reshaping his party to make it more compatible with modern-day Britain. His cabinet is remarkably diverse, with two of the three most powerful positions filled by Asian Britons. Describing his plans for big spending during the pandemic and after, Johnson admits... It sounds like a new deal. And all I can say is, if that is so, then that is how it's meant to sound and how it's meant to be. Because that is what the times demand. A government that is powerful and determined and that puts its arms around people at a time of crisis. He adds to these innovations more traditional Thatcherite ideas like efficient government, free trade and a moral foreign policy. We will build, build, build. Build back better, build back greener, build back faster. If Republicans are searching for a conservatism that can work in the modern era, they should first stop lying to their own voters. Then they could look to examples like Britain's to bring their party into the world of facts and reality. Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. There is breaking news this morning that I want to get to swiftly with our first guest. Today in Tehran, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei declared that if the West wants Iran to rejoin the nuclear deal, all sanctions will need to be lifted. For its part, the White House has said that Iran needs to come back into compliance with the deal as a first step. 
So both sides have set the bar high for a resumption of talks or at least the re resumption of the deal. What happens next? Joining me is Iran's foreign minister, Javed Zarif. Welcome, sir. And let me start with that. Um, all sanctions have to be lifted. The, the uh, uh, national security advisor on this program said Iran first needs to come into compliance. Um, where do we go from here? Well, uh, good morning to you. And it's good to be with you again. Uh, it, is, it is very clear. It was the United States that left the deal. It was the United States that violated the deal. It was the United States that punished any country that uh, remained respectful and compliant with the deal. So it is for the United States to return to the deal, to implement its obligations. Iran never left the deal. Iran is in the deal. Iran has reduced some of its commitments in line with the deal. The way to go back to full compliance on the part of Iran is for the United States, which has totally left the deal, to come back and, and implement its obligations. Now it's clear, it's a decision that President Biden and his advisors need to take. Whether they want to break with the failed policies of President Trump, or whether they want to build on his failures. If they want to build on his failures, they will only get failure as a result. Um, let me ask you uh, uh, something that, you know, am I reading this correctly? There have been demands in the past that in addition to the United States coming back into the deal, Iran should be compensated for y the U.S. withdrawal. Um, is it fair to read the, the, the Khamenei statement the, um, as saying, no, there are, the demand for compensation is not live anymore. The only issue is that the United States needs to uh, waive the sanctions. Well, the United States needs to lift the sanctions, not waive them. Uh, the U.S. needs to remove the sanctions. Uh, and uh, compensation was never a precondition. We said that we will discuss that once the United States is back in the deal, and that is for a very clear reason. The deal or any international agreement is not a revolving door. They cannot simply come and go as they please. So the United States must make it clear and must uh, give guarantees to Iran and other members of the deal that the behavior of President Trump will not be repeated because the international community has suffered enough from the lawlessness of somebody who acts on a whim. Uh, you, you've seen what has happened in the United States. You've seen what has happened in Congress. The people of Iran have felt that for four very, very long years. We're not prepared to feel that again. Um, your ambassador to the United Nations said that the window is closing for Iran to rejoin the deal. Can you give me a timeline? What does that mean? How long... Uh, is Iran willing to wait before there is an even more um, substantial uh, departure from the deal? Well, we have a statutory requirement uh, to reduce uh, the presence of UN inspectors, not to simply, uh, not to completely finish it, but to reduce the presence of, foreign, uh, of UN inspectors on somewhere around February 21st. Uh, I, I think what will happen then 
is that you will not see the additional protocol implemented in Iran. That doesn't mean the window is fully shut, because if the United States and its partners return to, to the deal, return to full compliance, Iran will reverse its actions. All the actions we are taking are reversible. But obviously, it would be much simpler if the United States decided to uh, make good on its commitments earlier rather than later. And it is good for the United States' reputation because President Trump not only destroyed the reputation of the United States domestically, but he destroyed the reputation of the United States uh, internationally. So the sooner the, the current administration returns to an international obligations, the sooner it can start rebuilding its reputation across the globe. Uh, the National Security Advisor on this program said that the, that if the deal were to be re, uh, to put back in place immediately, uh, the Biden administration would want to start negotiating with Iran about uh, limitations to its ballistic missile program. Uh, is this a possibility? Well, Jake Sullivan was a part of the negotiating team that negotiated this deal. He should know better that we discussed those issues, and it was because of the United States' inability to address its own military sales to our region, hundreds of billions of dollars of military sales to our region going to the countries that are committing genocide and war crimes in Yemen and elsewhere, that they could not address these issues. So uh, we agreed on what to deal with and what not to deal with. The United States cannot base its policy on what's mine is mine and what's yours is negotiable. We decided on these issues. The United States, as I said, can, should either break up with the past failures of President Trump or try to build on it. If they try to build on it, they cannot build anything other than failure. Just very quickly, though, so there is the ballistic missile issue non-negotiable? It's a non-starter? Uh, the entire nuclear deal is non-negotiable because it was fully negotiated. We need to implement something that we negotiated. We do not buy the horse twice. You put yourselves in our shoes. You agreed to a deal. You agreed to give and take. You agreed to sacrifice certain uh, demands that you had because you agreed not to deal with certain issues. For instance, we agreed that the limitations on arms uh, purchases and deliveries by Iran would uh, last for another five years, which just ended in October. That cannot be reinvented or renegotiated. The time is gone. We waited for five years. The United States did not implement the deal, but we did implement the deal, and we did fulfill our promises, and we are going to fulfill our promises again if the United States fulfill it, fulfills its promises. Let's, let's start with something that we agreed. We agreed on the JCPOA. The United States should start making good on its promises that it violated for, for, for very, very long years. For Iranians. You know that the Iranians were deprived of food and medicine during Trump administration, despite all the lies that they told American people. Stay with us. Uh, stay with us, Foreign Minister. Next up, uh, Iran versus Saudi Arabia, one of the most bitter rivalries on the world stage. President Trump's first foreign trip was to Saudi Arabia. 
By contrast, the Biden administration announced this week it was ending support for the Saudi-led military offensive in Yemen, in which Iran has backed the anti-Saudi forces. I will ask the foreign minister for his reaction to that move. We are back with Iran's Foreign Minister Javed Zarif. Um, Mr. Foreign Minister, let me ask you about uh, the announcement the Biden administration made that it was ending arms sales uh, that were uh, to Saudi Arabia relating to the Yemen war. Um, do you think that, um, can you hear me, Foreign Minister? Uh, can you hear me, Foreign Minister? I think we have a, uh, a, a technical problem. Not, not yet. Uh, all right, we will get this fixed. Um, we will take a short break and come right back to you. Administration's decision to stop funding, uh, to stop selling arms uh, to Saudi Arabia uh, relating to the Yemen uh, war will have the, does it produce the opportunity to end the war? What, what needs to happen next? Uh, I certainly hope that it does because uh, President Trump uh, made the United States an accomplice in a lot of crimes that Saudis committed in, uh, in Yemen. Now, let me tell you that Iran in April of 2015, with the knowledge of the United States, with the knowledge of Secretary Kerry, offered a four-point peace plan for Yemen, an immediate end to war, immediate humanitarian assistance, broad-based discussion among Yemenis, and establishment of a broad-based representative inclusive government in Yemen. That offer still stands, and we are prepared to work with the United Nations Special Envoy, Martin Griffith, who is right now in Iran, and I'll be seeing him tomorrow, and I'll, I will explain this to him. The reason uh, that offer did not fly was that uh, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia believed, and he informed the United States at that time, that they could win in three weeks. Uh, we're talking about April 2015. We are getting to the sixth year, and they are not even any closer to winning. So it's best for the United States to show some tough love to its allies and tell them to stop this atrocity. They will never win in Yemen. Uh, people have tried in the past. For the past 1,000 years, outsiders have tried to conquer Yemen, and they have failed. Saudi Arabia will fail too. Uh, they should not look for an accomplice. They should not look for a culprit. The culprit is the attempt to use force against the people of a country in their own country. We are prepared to do everything we can to bring this worst humanitarian catastrophe in many years to a close, and we are prepared to work with the United Nations, and I will continue tomorrow with Martin Griffith. Uh Foreign Minister, before I let you go, I want to ask you one question, and we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to ask you to indulge me and give me a brief reaction. The Abraham Accords do seem to suggest that the new alignment in the Middle East is largely one arrayed against Iran. Israel and the Gulf Arab states seem to be making common cause in an anti-Iranian alliance. Doesn't that put you in an, in an extraordinarily weak position? It doesn't, because it shows that our neighbors have not learned the lesson that they cannot purchase security from outside. They tried to purchase security from Saddam Hussein. They failed. They tried, and, and Saddam Hussein used the weapons that they gave him against themselves. 
They then tried to buy security from uh, President Trump, and President Trump only milked them. Israelis are going to be far worse than these two. So I think the best way for them is to come to the region. The resolution of the problems in our region should emanate from our own region, and Iran stands ready to work with them, since you All wanted right. a short reply. I realize I have a little bit of time, so I'm going to press you on the one issue I wanted to clarify, which is whatever the sequence, let us say that the U.S. and Iran do come back into compliance, both with the JCPOA, the, the Iran deal. Are you saying that even then you are unwilling to discuss any limitations on ballistic missile or once there is there is a return? This is a matter of sequence. Once there is a return, you will talk about ballistic missiles. And if you won't, can you explain why? Let me tell you very clearly that JCPOA was negotiated. It cannot be renegotiated. But if you want to talk about weapons, you have to look at the statistics. Saudi Arabia last year spent over $70 billion on military procurement. United Arab Emirates, which is uh, with, an, with an indigenous population of 1.5 million, spent close to $22 billion. I'm, I'm quoting Cipri numbers. Iran's total military expenditure with over a million soldiers in uniform was less, about 10 to 11 billion dollars. So are they prepared to bring down their weapon expenditures? Are the, is the United States prepared to stop selling a quarter of the global arms sales to our region? Our region is a powder keg. The United States should not talk about Iran's defense. The United States should talk about all these weapons that they are selling to our region and they are being used against innocent children in Yemen. So this is the question that needs to be asked, not to ask Iran about limiting its very limited defense expenditure. Foreign Minister, always good to have you on. Thank you for, uh, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Next on GPS, a rare opportunity to hear China's side of the story from a top official, Beijing's longtime ambassador to Washington, Sui Tangkai, joins me exclusively when we come back. To confront China's economic abuses, counter its aggressive, coercive action to push back on China's attack on human rights, intellectual property, and global governance. But we are ready to work with Beijing when it's in America's interest to do so. That was President Biden's message to China as he began to lay out his foreign policy doctrine at the State Department on Thursday. With me now, Beijing's representative in Washington. Ambassador Sui Tiankai has been China's ambassador to the United States since 2013. He received a master's degree from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in 1987 and has worked his way up through China's foreign ministry all the way to the top ever since. Ambassador Sui, a pleasure to have you back on. Good morning, Farid. So nice to see you. Um, so we had that statement of President Biden in the speech. We also had an exchange of uh, readouts of the of the of uh, descriptions of phone call that took place between America's top diplomat Tony Blinken and China's top uh, di uh, diplomat Yang Jiechi. It all seems pretty tough and. Uh, even the, the readouts uh, had a lot of uh, more tough language in them. Were you expecting a different start 
to the Biden foreign policy. Um, it seems as though uh, Yang Jiechi, uh, China's top lip- diplomat, said that the four years of the Trump administration had been the lowest point in U.S.-China relations since the opening to China uh, on, in the Nixon administration. Do you think there is a new uh, atmosphere in Washington or does it feel to you more like the Biden administration is continuing some of Donald Trump's hardline policies? Well, Farid, I think there are a few basic things here. So let me try to make my points one by one. First of all, China's development, China's growth has been made possible by the hard work of the Chinese people and our more than 40 years of reform and opening up. This is a historical fact. To say otherwise is against the facts and certainly not fair to the Chinese people. Internationally, China always stands for the basic norms governing international relations as embodied in the purposes and principles of the United Nations Charter. We always support multilateral institutions, the international system centered on the United Nations, including, for instance, WHO, WTO, and a number of others. And we already contribute more troops than other permanent members of the Security Council to the UN peacekeeping operations. We are already contributing a great deal to the global economic growth, and we are ready to do more. For instance, we are working with a number of other countries to confront the current pandemic, to restore economic growth globally. And hopefully, there's, I believe there's such a need and potential for bilateral relations between China and the United States in all these areas, especially vis-a-vis the emerging or already existing global challenges like climate change. For the readout for the phone call, yesterday. Frankly, my impression is that this readout is still, it still shows the example of power rather than the power of example. You don't have effective foreign policy just by talking tough or playing tough. This is not a way, not the way, the right way of doing diplomacy. I think there's a clear need for a good sense of mutual respect. People have to show good will and good faith. Of course, all countries have values and interests to defend. For China, national sovereignty, unity, territorial integrity, these are the core values and the core interests we will defend. We'll do whatever it takes to defend, no matter who says what. Um, But let me ask you about, you know, in some ways, this new, tougher foreign policy, which has become a consensus. I mean, there are something like 400 pieces of legislation in the in the House, uh, in the United States Congress that are aimed at uh, in some way, uh, you know, standing up to China. Uh, This this new toughness comes in some part as a response to a new Chinese foreign policy which has been itself much more aggressive. And, and you don't have to listen to the United States on this. If you ask the Australians, they find themselves facing a much more assertive China that is asking 
that Australian private think tanks do not do research that the Chinese government does not like. Uh, you find it when you talk to the Indians who feel that China has made incursions on a disputed border along the, the Himalayas. You find it in Japan where they think that China has pushed further its claims on the Senkaku Islands uh, in, in various ways. Uh, and of course, you find it uh, with, with Taiwan, Vietnam. So this is something that is this sense that China is flexing its muscles is not one just felt in the United States. Um, is, there, is there a reason for this new Chinese foreign policy? I don't think we have an entirely new foreign policy. We have been very consistent in our foreign policy. It's an independent policy for peace. Of course, we safeguard our sovereignty and independence. There's no doubt about that. But please look at the map. All the issues you mentioned and some other issues, they are either part of Chinese territory or in places very close to China. So who is on the offensive? Who is on the defensive? You just have a look at the map. It's all, always far away from the United States. The fact is, whenever you have more involvement by the United States, you have instability anywhere in the world. Look at the Middle East. Look at some other place, Latin America. And it's, it's so obvious that when you are sort of rebalancing or pivoting, whatever the word might be, then there's more instability in our region. But, but, but Ambassador, if I, may, if I may just uh, interrupt you for a second, these places may be far yeah. from the United States, but they're not far from Australia, from India, from Vietnam, from Japan. And I don't take Washington's word for it. All I'm asking is, are you listening to your neighbors? You see, we have uh, more than a dozen neighbors on the land and more neighbors across the sea. And over the course of the history, inevitably there have been disputes among the neighboring countries. This is the same thing anywhere in the world. But basically, China and its neighbors have been able to address these disputes and solve them through dialogue and negotiation. For instance, we concluded treaties and agreement with most of our neighbors on the land about the borders. It's all done by peaceful negotiations. We still have a couple of them left, but we are ready to work with them, negotiate with them, and in the meantime, maintain stability and tranquility in the areas. So without external involvement, it will be easier and more possible for the neighbors to solve the issues between themselves. When we come back, Secretary of State Pompeo said it. Secretary of State Blinken agrees. China's actions against the Uyghurs constitute a genocide. The ambassador's reaction when we come back. And we are back with China's ambassador to the United States, Tsui Tiankai. Let me ask you about one of the most contentious issues that is going to confront U.S.-China relations, and that is what is going on in Xinjiang. You know now President Biden has described it as a genocide. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo did so. And the new Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, said he agrees with that judgment. Is there not a way, I know you've been on the show before and said that this is inaccurate. 
Is there not a way for China to allow an international group of observers uh, free and total access, uh, interviews with, uh, you know, any and all Uyghur groups that it, that it wants to determine whether or not these claims about, uh, about a cultural genocide are true? I think for the fact is, in the last few years, there have been more than 1,200 people, journalists, diplomats, and from more than 100 countries. Some of them are Muslim countries. All these foreign visitors have visited Xinjiang in the last few years. You cannot say they are all not independent. You cannot say they don't have any observation. They have seen the facts on the ground very clearly. Why don't people listen to these people? And the real threat, the real threat in Xinjiang, up until very recent, was very clear. First, the threat of terrorism. There have been thousands of terrorist attacks in Xinjiang, hurting and even killing thousands of innocent people, people from all ethnic groups, Han people, Uyghur people, and others. So people have a strong demand that their safety and security should be guaranteed. That's what, what we have done in the last few years. Now, for the last few years, last three to four years, there has been no single case of terrorist attack. So people have much better sense of security and safety now. You say that we should listen to independent observers. Of course, uh, it's very hard for journalists to get there, but the BBC had some horrifying reports of labor camps that looked like prison camps and of guards who engaged in everything from sexual abuse to rape. Are you saying, you know, again, I ask you your response to that, but again, the simplest way to deal with this would be to welcome a group from uh, human, human rights organizations like Amnesty International or others to come in and, ma and make a thorough evaluation, because otherwise you do, you do have independent reports such as uh, exist from the BBC only a, a week ago. Most of their sources are not trustworthy. I've been to Xinjiang myself more than once in the last few years. I have seen all these things with my own eyes. I even visited some of the vocational training center. It's just, just like a campus. It's not labor camp, it's campus. I don't know how the BBC people got all this wrong information or misinformation. But you see, if you look at their track record, maybe you should not have total trust of what they say. Let me ask you about a question that, that you know keeps coming up, uh, which is, uh, was the coronavirus uh, accidentally leaked from a, a lab in Wuhan? Uh, the people making these charges, to be clear, do not have uh, strong evidence, but that's largely because China has not allowed uh, teams of medical researchers to go in uh, and they have not shared data on that. So let me just ask you this. On the, on the theory that the truth will eventually come out, um, would you categorically say that from all China's investigations, the coronavirus emerged from a wet market in Wuhan and not from the Wuhan Virology Institute lab? I think when people make accusations, they have to prove these accusations. 
And to say these things at a time when we're still faced with the pandemic is against the spirit of humanitarianism. Besides, now an expert group from WHO is working in Wuhan with their Chinese counterpart. They are working very hard. They are trying to look at all the facts and we are very supportive to their work. And I have also participated in some of the conferences between experts, real experts of our two countries. They are real scientists. They are looking at the whole pandemic from the point of view of scientists, not any politicians. So I think people have to be careful not to make groundless accusations. Also, there have been a number of media reports about early cases in other places in the world. So there is certainly need for more tracing to be done all over the world in order to really trace down the origin of the virus so the human race could be better prepared when we are faced with another virus again. So please do not politicize the whole issue. Please let the scientists do their professional job. And will scientists be allowed full access to China if, uh, from the WHO? They are already in Wuhan. They have been in Wuhan for quite a few days. My question is, will they be allowed to come here to do the same thing? Ambassador, it is so important for us to hear from you, and we thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Farid. Now, if you want to hear more of this important conversation with China's ambassador, I have clips about climate change, about technology, about Hong Kong, and more on my website. Please go to cnn.com slash Farid. By the way, regarding my question about the BBC, you should know that our news organization has done a series of reports on the Uyghur issue. In 2018, it did have reporters in Xinjiang. For this week's story, they talked to women who made it out of the camps and fled China. We will be back in a moment. My book of the week is Ayad Akhtar's Homeland Elegy. Akhtar won the Pulitzer Prize for his stunning play, Disgraced. This is an equally accomplished book, a memoir disguised as a novel, a story about a young Muslim man navigating his relationship with his father and their relationship with America in the years after 9-11. It is an absolutely riveting read. And now for the last look. Myanmar's military takeover was by many accounts the textbook definition of a coup. Key government figures were detained in pre-dawn raids. Tanks lined the streets as parliament was cordoned off. Cell and broadcast communications were blocked. A state of emergency is now in place for a year. With that, Myanmar's decade-long experiment with a democratic transition ended and the nation returned to military leadership, the status quo for most of the last 60 years. Meanwhile, Myanmar's most famous citizen, the nation's elected leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, returned to house arrest, as she had been for 15 years before the junta released her in 2010. What went wrong? As Max Fisher writes in the New York Times, Aung San Suu Kyi, who won a Nobel Peace Prize 30 years ago for her nonviolent struggle against that military regime, might not have been the Mandela-like leader that people imagined her to be. Suu Kyi lost the acclaim of the international community as she defended the military's atrocities against the Rohingya, Myanmar's Muslim minority. She even flew to The Hague in 2019 
to defend the military's actions in person before the International Court of Justice. Some observers cautioned that she had to appease the military. Others feared that she shared their animosity. If it was appeasement, it did not work. In nationwide elections in November, Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy, or NLD party, swept to even greater power than her astonishing 2015 victory, winning over 80% of the seats. The military claimed fraud when its proxy party won only 7%. And on Monday, the very day parliament was set to begin by certifying those election results, the generals took over. Why? Well, with her enormous electoral victory, Suu Kyi now had a mandate to further diminish the military's power. While still immensely popular, Suu Kyi did not seem to know how to wield that electoral power effectively against the military. She did not build a broad democratic coalition, instead running her own party like a court. She curtailed press freedoms and imprisoned dissidents. One crucial element for a transition to democracy in a poor country like Myanmar is a powerful, capable, and committed Democrat as leader. It turns out Aung San Suu Kyi was not that leader. A note before we go. In my take last week about vaccine nationalism, I should have made clear that Canada has promised to donate its excess supply of vaccines to developing countries. Let's hope others follow this excellent example. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.